Hi, I'm Bingo Demagogue, and welcome to the podcast, The Populist's Playbook. If you're concerned about the state of politics in the modern world, if you feel like roughly half of voters have taken leave of their senses, if you want to be better informed about the propaganda that's being used to try and manipulate you, then I hope you'll find this interesting. You should definitely find it concerning. The technique we're going to look at in this, the second chapter of the Populist's Playbook, is folksy man-of-the-people posturing. Now, as our examples come from over 2,000 years of history and across the political spectrum, maybe the similarities are more surprising than the differences. The pulp song Common People is a great summary of the tactics of this technique. It tells the story of a rich kid being taught to slum it. Smoke some fags and play some pool, pretend you've never been to school. It's someone pretending something that they're not. Today, we're going to look at a scandal-ridden, posh millionaire playboy going to extreme lengths to become the champion of the mob in a quest for vengeance through political power. We'll see a a millionaire banker with six well-paid jobs calling back to an idyllic rural past and saying he's a simple subsistence farmer. And we'll meet the urban equivalent when his colleague, a middle-class professional graduate, defines herself as a humble cooker of street food. There's the curious case of the high-powered lawyer with the voice of a foul-mouthed fishwife, and the corrupt and irreligious billionaire businessman who becomes the champion of blue-collar evangelical rust-belt workers against the um, swamp of billionaire corrupt politicians. And it's a big topic, there's a few other examples we'll touch on in passing, with a surprise appearance by Engelbert Humperdinck. What exactly do we mean by folksy man of the people posturing? Of course, in democracies with near-universal suffrage, we expect politicians to present themselves as a man or woman of the people. They need to appeal to the lowest common denominator to win a majority, or the largest minority of the votes, to draw their authority from. Basically, most politicians get out there, shake hands, and kiss babies. Still, as you'll see when we start to look at our examples, the populist is taking things a bit further. And the examples we're looking at today all come from democracies, but this technique's used by authoritarian populists too. It isn't specific uh, to a democracy. If you think back to our prologue, we're using an ideational definition of populist, as someone who seeks to gain power by positioning themselves as the champion of the will of the people against an elite, one of the pure against one of the corrupt. To do that, the populist needs to establish ethos. Uh, They need to establish credentials, make a connection, and show somehow they have the right to speak for the will of whoever they define as the people to target whoever they describe as the elite. We saw in chapter one, Promising the Impossible, that these techniques can operate on a number of levels. Sometimes people believe the impossible promises, sometimes it seems populists even believed in the impossible themselves, but what seemed to really be happening was that the impossible promise was a signal to voters. They had no intention of keeping the promise, Voters didn't even need to believe they would keep it for it to perform its function. In a similar way, with folksy man-of-the-people posturing, it can operate at a, a literal level, where it's a claim made in all seriousness, but more often at a symbolic level. It's not taken literally as a serious claim, it's used as a signal, and from it they present their public caricature and gain that ethos. So, we go first to the Rome of the late Republic in the first century BC. Those who don't remember history are condemned to repeat it. Those who do remember history are condemned to watch others repeat it. But there's a danger in reading too much into historical analogies. So, uh, with apologies to Professor Neville Morley, Professor of Classics at the University of Exeter, who has censured me for making this analogy, 
but I have to admit that in 2015, I was thinking a lot about Publius Claudius Pulcher. So Publius Claudius Pulcher, we'll call him Claudius, was a rich Roman aristocratic playboy, plagued by sexual and sacrilegious scandals in the late Roman Republic, around the middle of the first century BCE. He got embroiled in all sorts of corruption and scandals. He uh, accused opponents of defiling Vestal virgins. He bribed himself out of trouble, and in various posts he held, he accepted bribes to let others off. He fermented mutiny against the legions of his brother-in-law, and in return, his brother-in-law uh, accused him of incest with his sister. Even in the extremely patriarchal Roman society, uh, he showed an incredible amount of disrespect to women. He disguised himself as a woman and gatecrashed the Bonadia, the good goddess ritual, which was a mysterious female-only religious rite. Now, what was very probably little more than a drunken rich kid prank turned into a show trial for a capital crime, blasphemy. It, uh, it went on to upset the balance of power. It caused such chaos that it contributed to the instability that led to a generation of civil war and the collapse of the Republic. The crime had happened in Julius Caesar's house. Caesar was power-hungry, he was Pontifus Maximus, head of the Roman religion, he was in debt, and he was about to leave to take control of his legions in Spain, which would uh, be both profitable for him and put him beyond prosecution for the time being. Claudius had allegedly gate-crashed into the ritual to seduce the hostess, who was Caesar's wife. Caesar's enemies then said Caesar couldn't leave Rome while there was such a scandal and suspicion over his household. This would have been disastrous for Caesar. He would have been prosecuted, debts would have been called in. So he immediately divorced his wife, saying he didn't believe she was guilty, but Caesar's wife must be above suspicion. Claudius's trial quickly turned into a, a bit of a show trial. Cicero claimed he had wanted to stay out of the trial, but he was either pressurised or he calculated the benefit of testifying that he had seen Claudius in Rome on the day, destroying his alibi that he was 40 miles away. As to what happened next, Cicero says the jury was bribed. Plutarch says the jury was already afraid of Claudius's popularity with the mob, but the result was much the same. Claudius was acquitted, and Cicero had made a bitter enemy. And he burned with desire for revenge, not against the people who had prosecuted him, which he seemed to think was fair enough, but against Cicero for breaking his alibi, and populism was his path. So a rich, disgraced, billionaire playboy with little in common with the man in the street. How did he become literally one of them? What's in a name? Claudius becomes Clodius. Roman society was stratified into distinct classes of citizens. At the top were the patrician class, literally the father class. Uh, they were Roman aristocracy. They were descended from the oldest families that claimed descent back to the founding of Rome, and in some cases claimed descent back to the gods themselves. There was a relatively wealthy middle class of equestrians, these were the Roman knights, um, who stemmed from those wealthy enough uh, to take a horse into battle in early Rome. Then, still higher than slaves and non-citizens, were the plebeian class, the freeborn commoners, the crowd, the mob. So Claudius went to extreme lengths within Roman law, but mocking Roman tradition. In Rome, adoption of adult males was a common tactic to arrange dynasties. Uh, for example, Octavian, who was to become the Emperor Augustus, was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. If you think of it being done in a similar way as arranged marriages, by convention it was done by childless older Romans with little chance of producing a male heir to create a dynasty. Claudius made a mockery of the practice. He had himself adopted by someone who was 
one, several years younger than him, and two, of a much lower social class, a plebeian. And he argued for dispensation that this now legally made him a plebeian and lower class. Um, this was outrageous. Look, looking at other chapters in the populist playbook, this was pure vulgarity and outrageous behaviour. Now, we could spend all day, in fact, there, there's a whole series of podcasts that could be unpicking the machinations of late Republican Rome. Claudius had got off on a charge of attempting to seduce Caesar's wife because the jury was bribed by Crassus, who then went into a secret party with Caesar, who then used his official position as Pontifex Maximus to help Claudius become a plebeian to take revenge on the witnesses at the trial. Becoming a plebeian was critical to his plan because of the way Roman power was divided between classes. As a patrician, Claudius had held political offices, but the form of Roman democracy was SPQR, Senatus Populusque Romani, the Senate and the people of Rome. While the patricians were the upper class, and only patricians could really hold the, the top offices, um, one of the two annual consuls that led the Senate, the Senate did not actually pass laws. The Senate proposed laws, and these were ratified or vetoed by the people. And as a plebeian, Clodius could now hold the post Tribune of the Plebeians, one of the most powerful roles. And it was to cement his new role as a pleb that Claudius became Clodius. The classical Latin pronunciation was very different from the medieval Latin we are more familiar with. For a start, there was no soft C. The C came from the Greek kappa and was hard. So Julius Caesar was actually Julius Caesar, from where we get Kaiser and Tsar. Cicero, who was the target of much of Claudius's hatred, would have been Cicero. But within that, from what we can tell, there were different pronunciations between the ruling class and the plebeian class. After his adoption, Claudius, changing his name to Clodius, was literally making his name sound more common. You don't actually have to look too far for a modern equivalent. If you can think of one Alexander Boris de Pfeffel Johnson, going by just Boris, or Boris Johnson, or Bojo, it's the same trick. I call this the reverse Humperdinck. If Engelbert Humperdinck had been the birth name of a populist politician, he probably would have appeared on his ballot paper as Arnold George Dorsey. Clodius cemented his role as champion of the people by passing Rome's first free grain dole, guaranteeing citizens a certain measure of free grain to make bread with. A juvenile later observed about the Romans that all they cared about was bread and circuses. You could fill their belly with bread, put on some entertainment, and they'd let you get away with literally murder. It was Clodius who really put the bread into that equation. The next thing Clodius did was allow guilds to meet in the street. These were essentially street gangs loosely based around professions that had previously been restricted to help keep the peace. So now with the plebs behind him, bought with a bribe of bread, and gangs of armed thugs in the street, and positioning all his actions as the plebeians striking back against an oppressive elite, Clodius pursued his revenge. Cicero, who just a few years earlier had himself been a champion of the people, and hailed a father of the fatherland for foiling the Catiline conspiracy, was exiled. Claudius confiscated Cicero's house, had it demolished, had the ground consecrated, and a temple to the goddess Liberty built on the spot. Claudius eventually got his comeuppance. He was murdered in a skirmish with a pro-Ciceronian gang, but he certainly added to the chaos, instability, machinations that led to 20 years of civil war, and eventually the collapse of the democratic Roman Republic, to see it replaced by autocratic one-man rule. And once the citizens had been granted their free daily bread, this also proved impossible for anyone in the future to take away. 
and the need to fulfil uh, Clorius's free dole of grain to an exponentially growing Roman urban population has even been seen as a driving force behind the expansion of the Roman Empire. But all this was only possible because this rich, aristocratic, spoilt cream of the elite used a questionable adoption, a change of name, a bribe to the mob, and folksy posturing to make himself a homoplevian, a man of the people, while he pursued his own bloody vengeful agenda. All right, coming into Scotland and the UK in the 21st century, we have the crofter, the fishwife, and the chip shop friar. Aye, rough it is indeed, but not everywhere so barren. We live here. These are our homes and our crofts, down by the sea there and around the waters of the loch. Our forefathers trenched and drained and made the land, and anywhere there's a bit of ground that a man can work. There you'll find our clachans, our small fields of crops, and our church. The UK, like Belgium, is a United Kingdom, a monarchy with several devolved regional parliaments. It has a national parliament in Westminster, London, and devolved administrations in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. The two parliaments the Scottish Nationalist Party currently operates in are Holyrood in Edinburgh, where they are led currently by Nicola Sturgeon, and the House of Commons in the Palace of Westminster, where they are led by Ian Blackford. So in the UK Westminster two-chamber parliamentary system, the House of Commons is literally meant to be the house representing the common people. Um, so you wouldn't think you would need folksy man-of-the-people posturing just by being there. That's what you're representing. It runs checks and balances and quality testing for proposed legislation from the House of Lords. Compared to the US two-house system of government, it's been said, the US system works in principle, but not in practice. In the UK, it's the other way around. So we're going to look uh, in London first at how Blackford presented himself uh, and why is it folksy man-of-the-people posturing bordering on the absurd. In a speech to the House on the 29th of October 2018, Blackford claimed, I am just a simple crofter with 10 acres with a if you're not familiar with the term, a crofter is one of the poorest, humblest farmers. It's generally a tenant who doesn't own their land, renting a small parcel, a croft, um, with shared access to poor quality grazing. Generally, it's seen to be enough to feed a couple of cows and grow some vegetables for the kitchen pot. It is literally about as down-to-earth and humble a person as you could imagine. About 10% of the population of the Highlands of Scotland are crofters. Now, Blackford does technically own a croft, though he doesn't spend much time there being a, a member of a parliament, living much of the time in London. Uh, there are actually legal requirements to be considered a crofter. Uh, you have a legal duty to be ordinarily resident within 32 kilometres of the croft, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt here. He owns a croft, so what's the problem? Well, in a pattern we will see repeated, this politician pretending to be just the poor, down-to-earth man of the people is wealthy very wealthy. Ian Blackford was an investment banker for over 20 years. On top of the £77,000 a year MP salary, he earns over £3,000 a month from his role as a chairman of Golden Charter Trust, over £1,000 a month from acting as chairman of Commsworld PLC. Um, he actually says he only works eight hours per quarter there. That's roughly £385 per hour. And while most crofts are rented, his acres of farmland are owned and are worth over half a million pounds themselves. He's got a bob or two. In the speech he was making, it was with reference to farming and crofting, but describing himself as just a simple crofter, it's textbook folksy posturing. For proof that it is disingenuous, Blackford lists five second jobs besides being an MP. None of his second jobs are crofter. 
One other reason I've chosen this example is, in this case, the posturing is literally folksy. Folksy is defined as simple, rustic, friendly, to invoke traditional or rural crafts or to appear to do so. And this is a common romantic nationalist trope, calling back to an idealised rural past. Romantic or organic nationalism, it's also known as. Um, if you check out the Wikipedia page on nationalism um, in the bibliography on populistplaybook.com, it can equally apply to ethnic or civic nationalism. And it arose in answer to dynastic nationalism, um, where identity flowed down from an authoritarian monarch. So this idealised rural nationalism is the nationalism that parades in a, a real, imagined or idealised national dress. Um, this call back to an idealised rural identity is also what has driven the Scottish government to politicise Gaelic. In modern Scotland, around 2% of people speak Gaelic, and 99% of Gaelic speakers speak English, but still millions are spent branding train stations, road signs, ambulances, police cars and more, in a language no one speaks, uh, even in areas where the language was never spoken historically. And just as a nice balance, where Blackford appealed to the rural common people, his prolier-than-now colleague, Mary Black, made a similar appeal to the urban poor. And perhaps the most down-to-earth folksy of them all is Mary. She can be a very compelling speaker. She is one of the youngest people to ever become a member of Parliament. But she can lay on the working-class hero tropes a bit thick, um, to the point of even accusing the middle class of being the elite. Saying in one interview about uh, young working-class people, no matter what they vote, you still end up with middle-class, middle-aged guys making your decision for you. When she spoke to the SNP conference in 2015 after being elected as an MP, she said, The reason that I mention this journey is because it is symbolic of what's happened in Scotland over the last year. The idea that a then 20-year-old chip shop friar could become a member of parliament would have been laughed at. So, working class hero, a chip shop worker railing against the middle class career politicians. So a chip shop is where you get fish and chips, it's fried food, it's, it's street food. 20-year-old chip shop friar is an urban equivalent to just a simple crofter. This is very much spin. It's a rhetorical device in establishing ethos. The caricature of how they are choosing to present themselves with a defining characteristic. For a bit of background, Mary comes from quite well-to-do suburbs. Her parents were professionals, first teachers and then business owners. And she, despite hating career politicians, she went straight from completing her politics degree into being a member of parliament. Now, much like Ian Blackford technically owns a croft, Mary did work in a fast food shop as a part-time job while she was at university getting her politics degree. It wasn't her defining feature, it wasn't her, uh, her trade or her family background. If you think back to your part-time job at college, imagine if that was used to define your origins. Or think of all the senators in the US and members of parliament in the UK, what part-time jobs have they had when they were, when they were teenagers. It is relating well to the man on the street through fast food, um, through cheap street food. And where we have fish and chips in Scotland, in America we have hamburgers, specifically uh, Wendy's and McDonald's. But before we cross the pond, our next example is one of my favourites. It's clever, low risk, it's common as muck, and it's completely deniable. The next example of folksy man of the people posturing is actually woman of the people posturing. And it's unusual in the way it's being done by proxy. Nicola Sturgeon, First Minister of Scotland, has a very different style from her predecessor and mentor Alex Salmond, but they were both traditional qualified professionals. Where Alex Salmond was an economist at the Royal Bank of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon was a practising lawyer. Ur Nicola, as she's known, 
makes presidential-style TV addresses that would have been unthinkable in Scottish democracy even a decade ago. But what's most interesting about them is what you might call the, uh, the, the folksy man of the people posturing by proxy. This is from an online version of one of her daily coronavirus briefings. Well, it seems we're into the mixed messages again. Boris has dropped stay at home and started stay alert. And I'll tell you right now, that's just going to confuse the fuck out of everybody. I don't even know what stay alert means. I've been alert all my life. I'm a woman. I look over my shoulder everywhere I go. And people are saying to me, why can't you do what Boris is doing? He's the Prime Minister. Well, see, when I was a wee lassie growing up, I used to say to my mammy, can I climb the top of the graveyard wall? And she'd say no. And you might have guessed that wasn't... Nicola Sturgeon speaking herself. Prominent nationalist campaigner Jane Godley produces comedy versions of these uh, addresses with a voiceover, with the tacit approval of Sturgeon. All politicians must turn a wry smile to uh, having fun poked at them. The voiceovers here are in no way critical of the subject, in the way that most political comedy is. They are sycophantic rather than satirical, and Nicola Sturgeon openly approves of them. The Scotsman newspaper on 23rd of March said, Nicola Sturgeon has voiced her approval of a tweet by comedian Janie Godley that makes light of her daily coronavirus briefings. The First Minister retweeted a clip on Sunday of Glasgow comic Godley performing an expletive-laden voiceover on one of her official government messages. Sturgeon has described them as very funny and said she's making people laugh but, if you listen very carefully, she is very powerfully getting the key message across. So I think she is doing a good job. You might think there's no harm here. But it's certainly an unusual situation where we have middle-class lawyer in the respectable job of first minister, supposedly the most influential job in the land, reveling in being presented as a foul-mouthed Glasgow fishwife. And in these tirades in broad Glasgow accent using the coarsest Scots patois and slang, she seemed to hurl abuse at opponents and mock people who disagree with Nicola Sturgeon's policies. So Nicola can get the down-to-earth associations without needing to hurl the abuse herself. Where's the harm? But it's possible this folksy persona has then crossed over with potentially harmful effects. The UK government advice for coming out of pandemic lockdown was stay alert. Here's how Nicola Sturgeon described that advice. I don't know what stay alert means. Presumably we all live our lives in normal times staying alert to danger. Uh, But if I say to you my message now is stay alert and you say to me, but does that mean I stay at home or not? I I can't give you a straight answer to that and therefore I am failing in my duty to be clear in terms of of what I'm asking you to do. So given that Nicola Sturgeon didn't understand what stay alert meant and she was worried it was vague and imprecise, the equivalent Scottish message when Scotland eased restrictions a couple of weeks later came as a surprise. Thousands of new Scots for whom English is a second language, thousands of Scots who were brought up in other parts of the UK, Scots who were brought up outside the central belt in Scotland, were being advised in the colloquial Glaswegian Godley's fishwife character to hashtag keep the heed. K-E-E-P-T-H-E-H-E-I-D. This is a colloquial Glasgow slang, meaning to stay calm and not lose your temper. This isn't a tourist message or a cultural branding exercise. This is public safety advice in a time of deadly pandemic. There are many guidelines available on writing optimal safety advice. There's plenty of advice out there from academics, from the NHS, from health and safety research, from the UK government, EU advice. Across them all, pretty much the first rule of a public safety notice is use plain language for effective communication. 
Effective safety messages are best written in clear language that can be easily understood by the largest amount of people. Stop. Wear eye protection. Danger. High voltage. Highly flammable. Stay alert. Keep the heat. Even if you know the sign and understand it, it still doesn't actually make perfect sense. Uh, if you don't understand it at all, it's just going to be confusing. So what is being done here? Surely, if the SNP have competence in anything, it's in controlling their message. I find it hard to believe that Nicola Sturgeon genuinely found stay alert utterly incomprehensible, but thought keep the heed was much clearer. But there is a, a, a pattern we see in Scottish nationalism, which is identity-based, of working to make things deliberately different, especially deliberately different from England. Reverse engineering this, there's a good chance they started with the UK message and desperately looked for ways to make it different and colloquial in Scottish and local. Maybe it's a translation of keep calm and carry on. Why would they do this? Who are the audience? What's the purpose? Well, the phrase is used, it'll be readily understood by a subsection of Scottish society, working to lower middle class Scots raised here and those that affect to be so, chip shop friars and the like. It's in the Scots language. Scots is a, a dialect of English with its own vocabulary as well, but of the over 5 million people living in Scotland, in the most recent census in 2011, over 3.2 million of them over the age of three said they had no knowledge of the Scots language. Frankly, that's bound to be an underestimate. Uh, Scots has such a large overlap with English, there's a few words here and there. Many phrases are well-known and um, plastered all over thistle mugs and tartan tea towels for the tourists. But the choice of keep the heed wasn't to communicate a safety message. Scots is being used here to signal a connection to the SNP target and core voters. That's uh, not necessarily new Scots, not posh Scots, not Scots raised in other parts of the UK, not many Scots even outside the central belt. Certainly not the many, many European and international Scots for whom English is already a second language. You might call it Vox Godly. What it tells us is, when designing a public health model, they were certainly thinking about Scots, just not all of them. Sending that man-of-the-people signal about identity was more important than the most effective public health message. I have a duty to be able to be clear to you about what my messages to you involve in terms of what you can do and what you can't do. Having seen how it's used with, uh, with fish and chips, let's go across the pond and look at hamburgers. In chapter one, we looked at Trump trying to fulfill his impossible promises to build his wall, creating the longest government shutdown in US history as he demanded some of the wall costs be included in the budget. Hamburger Hill. During that time, because they were furloughed without pay, there were no caterers at the White House. That's when he invited the Clemson Tigers, who were national college football champions, to the White House on January 14th, 2019. And as there were no caterers, he ordered in around 300 hamburgers and pizzas. Although in true Trump style, he later claimed it was over a thousand burgers. Now, is this folksy man of the people posturing? In one sense, maybe not. The hamburgers probably aren't posturing. All the signs are that Trump genuinely pretty much lives off fast food and Diet Coke. And it's a long association. In the 90s and early 2000s, he made adverts for Pizza Hut, made adverts for McDonald's. But we can say it's posturing because this was a narrative. It was a lukewarm fried photo op. 
it was a deliberate choice for PR and, and being able to put the message out there that even though the federal government is shut down so there are no caterers, Trump has personally paid uh, for this food to be brought in. But as Vox magazine pointed out, Trump owns the Trump International Hotel just three blocks from the White House that has an entire kitchen and catering staff employed by him that could easily have catered the event to the normal standards. Vox magazine also reported, For some, Trump's comments, particularly when he speculated to reporters prior to the event that, I would think that's their favorite food, referring to chains like McDonald's and Wendy's, rang as classist or racist. Possibly, but if he sees it as classist, he was playing for the Working Class Association. The photo op of the fast food performs the function for him. When reporters asked him to name his own favorite fast food, Trump said, I like it all. I like it all. It's all good stuff. Great, great American food. And it's to be very interesting to see at the end of this evening how many are left. Do you prefer McDonald's or Wendy? I, I like them all. That's a tough question. If it's American, I like it. It's all American stuff. You like them all. If it's American, I like it. It's all American stuff. It's a signal. So the, the hamburger here is performing like the modern uh, American as apple pie form. And he liked the coverage. We know this because he did it again even after the lockdown had ended. Two months later in March, he had a similar photo op fast food buffet uh, with the North Dakota State's football team, saying... We could have had chefs, we could have, but we got fast food. I know you people very well. I know you people very well. We're not sure exactly who he means. Uh, teenagers, people from Dakota, football players. But where other politicians would serve their elite foods, at Trump events, even at the White House, are the down-to-earth $27 worth of lukewarm fast food. And hey, he likes that himself, so he must just be a regular guy. And there is certainly as well a, a regular man of the people style to Trump's rhetoric to his speech. Analysis has shown that Trump's forms of speech are closer to everyday conversation and folksy compared to the polished speeches of uh, orators like Obama. Language analysis of Trump's speech patterns compared to other politicians suggests there is a real difference in how he communicates. Other politicians use written speeches, they use complex clauses and structure, they use metaphors regularly. Trump often ad-libs rambling speeches which jump from tangent to tangent and which are the bane of transcription. One analyst suggested his speeches simply do not make sense when they're written down, but they do communicate what he wants when they're spoken due to other visual and social clues. One suggested this may be a New York feature of speech. New Yorks can often finish each other's sentences, and in Trump's speeches he can trail off and leave things unsaid, but the mind of his core voters literally fills in the blanks. It's a folksy way of communicating, and indeed he, he regularly calls his audience folks. In What are the three characteristics of Trumpism, a discourse analysis of Trump's four major campaign speeches, Rachel D. Beeman writes in Political Analysis in, in 2018, President Trump throughout all of his speeches has demonstrated a colloquial tone and a determination to keep things simple for his audience. He does not wish to make grand promises such as the sun setting or leading people to the promised land. However, other striking comparisons have been made between the Trump of today and the Trump of 30 years ago, and question what is style and what is decline. Stat News in 2017 said, The change in linguistic facility could be strategic. Maybe Trump thinks his supporters like to hear him speak simply and with more passion than proper syntax. Linguist Ben McAllis is a psychologist in New York City 
who has performed cognitive assessments for New York Supreme Court and Criminal Court. He said he may be using it as a strategy to appeal to certain types of people, with a clear reduction in linguistic sophistication over time, and with simpler word choices and sentence structure. But whether by accidental decline, posturing, or it seems most likely a bit of both, this folksy talk works. Remember, Trump is a billionaire grown-up playboy with a real estate empire. He's a modern Claudius, sorry Neville, yet in a letter called Why Trump Won, published in the Aspen Times in November 2015, one voter, Michael Glavis, wrote, Donald Trump didn't run a political campaign. He couldn't, because he isn't slash wasn't a politician. That was their problem. The models that everyone had, only compare apples to apples, or should I say, politicians to politicians. If you have a commoner going against a political elites or several political machines, the dynamics change, the rules of the game change. Models and prediction algorithms can't calculate what it can't comprehend. Trump knew this from day one. He used this knowledge to leverage his position past his Republican opponents, and then against the media and the democratic machine. It's pure populism. Because he positioned himself against the elite, the elite's models couldn't have predicted his victory. And being against the elite, he must be a commoner. Anthony Scaramucci writes in The Hill that Trump really is a man of the people, justifying it with an ad populum appeal because he gets large numbers of small donations, saying, While Trump might be a billionaire, he is really a man of the people whose top priority has always been making our country much stronger and more prosperous, especially for the forgotten men and women that Washington ignored for so many years. So he's a billionaire, but he talks like the man in the street. He doesn't sound like a politician. He sounds like an outsider. He eats McDonald's. He is so openly, proudly flawed, and he isn't constrained by fact-checking. He's just saying what he thinks, and for many poor white rural Americans, that feels honest and compelling and appealing, and he's built up an ethos with them. So why do they do it? How can you spot it? What can we do about it? Well, they're doing it to curry favour. All politicians will be told by their advisors to connect to the average voter because of the belief that if people can relate to them, they'll be more likely to vote for them. That's part of it. That's why politicians are photographed eating fish and chips, drinking iron brew, or on one photo opportunity that went memorably bad for Ed Miliband, failing to eat a bacon sandwich. But the populist application of this is more extreme, like they have taken that point and exaggerated it to excess. Going back to the ideational definition of populism that you're using, to quote from Populism, a very short introduction by Cass Muddle and Cristobal Rovera Kaltwasser, Agreement is general that all forms of populism include some kind of appeal to the people and a denunciation of the elite. Accordingly, it is not overly contentious to state that populism always involves a critique of the establishment and an adultation of the common people. Populist leaders have to convince their followers that they do not belong to the corrupt elite, but that they belong to the pure people. So the populist pursues power by positioning themselves as the voice of the people against their designated elite. It can be a way of giving a wink to the crowd who are in the know, allowing the insiders to believe they are party to the real things that are going on behind the scenes. In her book, Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump, which I strongly recommend, um, you can see the link uh, on the site, populistplaybook.com. Professor of Rhetoric, Dr. Jennifer Murcia, identifies several techniques that he uses. Some of them overlap with the 12 techniques I outline in the Populist's Playbook, um, but with uh, the academic proper rhetorical names. For example, ad baculum, or argument with the stick, is basically threats of violence and intimidation. One of the techniques she outlines is paralipsis, 
she defines this as paralipsis, or I'm not saying, I'm just saying, used by dangerous demagogues to avoid accountability by saying two things at once. So, um, like when Trump retweets something in his challenge on it, he says, hey, I didn't tweet it, I'm just retweeting it. Or uh, I'm not saying there was a conspiracy, I'm just saying a lot of people were talking about it. And she goes into some great examples in the book. When we look at the fishwife tapes in Scotland, when Sturgeon gives her nod and wink tacit she knows what I'm really thinking approval, the godly voiceovers perform the same double-speak function of paralipsis. Occasionally I watch them and I think, yeah, she, she, she must have an insight into what I was really thinking at that point, but I wasn't able to see it. And she manages to voice it in her particular style. Godly can be offensive, abusive, folksy, rude. Nicola gets the benefit while she can also disassociate herself. She is in effect saying, this is what I really think, but I'm not allowed to say it. While not having to say it herself, she gains plausible deniability. When millionaire Ian Blackford claims to be a simple crofter, it's an attempt to position himself as the honest voice of an underdog. He's developing the ethos to be speaking on behalf of the underdog when raising grievances. But there's also an element of the romantic nationalism of calling back to a rural ideal. In this case, the reference to crofters and speaks to the trope of the Highland Clearances, one of many long-held grievances still used to stir up Anglophobia amongst nationalists in Scotland. And what's in a name? As we've seen from Claudius onwards, there's a long tradition of politicians changing their names, building a character that they want to be perceived as. You can see Eton-educated Bullington Club member Alexander de Pfeffel becomes affable clown Boris Johnson or Bojo. The patrician Claudius became the plebeian Clodius. Christopher Murray Grieve thought his name sounded too English. He became the Scottish caricature Hugh McDermott. You can imagine that as a name for a, for a simple crofter. The Right Honourable First Minister Nicola Sturgeon MSP becomes Ur Nicola, calling back to previous folksy SNP slogans like It's Ur Pound. British ex-Chancellor George Osborne was born Gideon Osborne. Donald Trump's closest running rival for the Republican nomination, Jeb Bush, is actually John Ellis Bush Sr. The Florida politician Cornelius Harvey McGillicuddy is better known as Connie Mac. Some of this is folksy man of the people posturing. Um, there are also genuine, tangible voting benefits for politicians. In a study called The Name Pronunciation Effect, Why People Like Mr. Smith More Than Mr. Colhoun, authors Simon N. Latham, Peter Koval, and Adam L. Alter say, Names are rich sources of information. They can signal gender, ethnicity, or class. They may connote personality characteristics ranging from warmth and cheerfulness to morality. But names also differ in a much more fundamental way. Some are simply easier to pronounce than others. Five studies provide evidence for the name pronunciation effect. Easy to pronounce names and their bearers are judged more positively than difficult to pronounce names. Study five highlights an important real-world implication of the name pronunciation effect. People with easier to pronounce surnames occupy higher status positions in law firms. These effects obtain independent of name length, unusualness, typicality, foreignness, and orthographic regularity. In summary, the easier a name is to pronounce, the more positively it is judged. This holds for name evaluation, voting preferences, and occupational status. So one first thing to check is if the politician is being presented as a media character. If you see a nickname being used, be suspicious. People have every right to change their names, and there may be innocent explanations. Jeb Bush always meant by the, uh, the acronym of his initials, J-E-B, long before he was in politics. President Ford changed his name from Leslie Lynch King Jr. to match his stepfather's surname over his birth name. Uh, just as well, we can only imagine how Republicans would have reacted to having a king in the White House. 
Gideon Osborne changed his name to George Osborne at age 13, and you probably would. Um, he said, It was my small act of rebellion. I never liked it, the name Gideon. When I finally told my mother, she said, Nor do I. So I decided to be George, after my grandfather, who was a war hero. Life was easier as a George. It was a straightforward name. So before you vote, check the name. You should be voting for the person, not a manufactured persona. And while you're checking that, do a background check. Uh, regard the resume. Look at the CV. If you were going to employ someone to do an important job for you, you would be entitled to a background check. So have the sense to do the same for your politicians. Who are they really? What is their work history? Look out for any of the rags to riches, self-made man, humble beginnings narratives, or any claims to particularly humble jobs, subsistence farming, street food. And, you know, there's exceptions that prove the rule. Dennis Skinner, Labour MP, he genuinely was a coal miner for 20 years. He went on to become the youngest chairman of the Derbyshire National Union of Miners. That's clearly not posturing. Silvio Berlusconi, we'll come to him later in the series as a populist, but you may be surprised or not to learn that he was a singer on a cruise ship um, before getting his law degree and creating his media empire. Well, I'm not sure he ever, uh, he ever called back to it. So before you vote, look at the background of the politicians. What jobs did they do? What jobs are they still doing? Donald Trump was the billionaire son of a millionaire whose niece says he has been sheltered from the consequences of any decision he's ever made, leaving him with no empathy or higher functions. He has a long history of being one of the elite. Ian Blackford is a millionaire investment banker. His day job as an MP earns him several times the average UK salary, and he lists five second jobs, including sitting on a financial board with David Davis, uh, our Brexit impossible promiser from Chapter 1. Plebeian Clodius was the equivalent of a, a, a millionaire or a billionaire patrician aristocrat from one of Rome's oldest, richest elite families. Uh, Nigel Farage, who has cultivated his straight-talking, tweed-wearing, fag-smoking, pint-drinking persona, is a millionaire who started out as a commodities broker in the city of London. You might be seeing a pattern here. So look out when they have a claim to have a, a humble job or beginnings, especially if they use that to define themselves. Just a simple crofter, a fish shop fryer. Check their actual backgrounds, check the context. Look out for folksy, colloquial or slang language. Keep the heed. Check that the name they're known by is the real person or if it's a created persona. And if you do see a staged photo or event, and this holds true for, for all the techniques and things. Ask yourself, what's being shown here? What message are they trying to get across? How genuine is it? Who are the target audience? What do they want to make you feel? And when you do see folksy man of the people posturing, call it out, point it out, question it. Using the birth name, for example, highlights the artifice of the persona. When you call Boris Johnson Alexander de Feffel, people need to stop and think and recognise the trick. Putting the context in shows the hyperbole of the over-humble claims. Just a simple crofter being a millionaire banker with five jobs. If you highlight it when you see it, people don't like being manipulated. And so highlight the manipulation um, and then people can see behind the scenes um, and see what's really going on. So thank you for listening. Please like and subscribe wherever you find the podcast. You can get in touch on Twitter at Bingo Demagogue, B-I-N-G-O. D-E-M-A-G-O-G-U-E And you can find references, show notes, articles, links and more at populistsplaybook.com Join us soon for the next chapter of the Populists Playbook.